Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly, and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. part of this together once again. So we're going to pick up at verse 4 this morning. First Samuel 15. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them into lame, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, you are not the head of the tribes of Israel. Are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you a king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. 
But the people took the spoil and sheep and oxen and best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away. As Samuel Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and tore it. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, we remember that the word of our God remains forever. Let's just ask his help as we look at this passage together. Please bow with me. Lord God, we come before you and we, Lord, once again, just thank you for a a day that is set aside to pause from the busyness of the week and all of the activities and, Lord, that we can come together with uh, fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ who are called by your name and we can lift up our voices in song and praise. We can open your word and together be admonished and, Lord, convicted as we need to be and pointed to Christ ultimately as our king, as our, our perfect high priest, even as we were reminded of the kids' questions, Lord, we rejoice in, in this great news. And Lord, we ask that uh, as we consider this just uh, devastating moment in Saul's life and in the, the history of Israel, that we would, Lord, examine ourselves and, and learn from the, um, Lord, the, the, the pride that cost him uh, his kingdom. And Lord, that we would be quick to turn uh, from our own pride and arrogance before you, that we would submit ourselves to your word. And Lord, that your spirit within us would would bring about uh, true humble hearts, a a sense of being poor in spirit, Lord, that we might, Lord, truly be among your uh, kingdom citizens. And so we ask your blessing now upon the teaching of your word in the hearts of your people, and that my words would go forth in conviction of your spirit, that Lord, it would be uh, as, as you have intended it to be for your people. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.
may be seated. Thank you. So this morning we uh, come to probably some of the most well-known passages in Samuel once again in chapter 15. And it's uh, fitting in many ways that uh, this is, at least as far as 1 Samuel goes, um, pretty close to the middle of the account. Because we have a, a major transition here in the life of Saul and in the history of Israel as their king is established. We see this, uh, as it were, this, this third strike of Saul. This is not the first time, as you know, that he has acted foolishly or presumptuously. But this is a decisive moment where Saul's disobedience leads to the final rejection of his kingship. And so the title this morning is A Corrupted Obedience. A Corrupted Obedience. And uh, a week ago, I suppose, um, my wife and I watched a, a movie, and I'm always hesitant to reference movies, but this one was um, fairly closely based on a true story called The Finest Hours And it tells the true story of some oil tankers off of uh, Cape Cod in Massachusetts um, that on the same day, there was a a great storm that was blowing off the coast. And these, these tankers that were initially designed for the Second World War to carry fuel back and forth to the, the Allied forces, uh, they were sold into commercial use. And on this particular day, in 1952, the storm is blowing, and two of these 500-foot oil tankers split in half. And on the port side, the, the captain's side, I think four or five men with him sunk very quickly. But on the, the stern side of the ship, it remained floating, and there was 33 men that were on this this ship that were stranded and at sea in the terrible storm and the the story tells of uh, Bernie Weber who sails out into this storm that seemed to be an impossible um, rescue mission likely that he would die along with the men in his um, his, uh, his he was part of the um, the patrol there the oh the word just escaped me um, anyways the part of the coast guard that's what I'm looking for and uh, they go out and of course in the in the in the movie the telling of the story they don't get all of the details right. Historically, they actually sang the Rock of Ages as they were making their way to this vessel. And uh, while I won't tell you how the story ends, you'll have to read the book or, or watch the show, I suppose. What was interesting is they historically looked at these tankers and tried to discern what caused this to happen, what caused them to split in half like this in the middle of the storm. It was determined that they, they used a higher level, level of sulfur in the making of the metal. And when it became cold, the metal became brittle. And uh, actually, the particular ship, the, uh, the Pedding, Peddleton, I think was the name of the ship, uh, it actually had been fractured previously. And they had tried to weld it and repair it. And uh, yet, on this particular storm, with the severity of the waves, it, blo- it broke right in half. And all because of, at the very uh, fabrication of the metal, there was this defect that led to the sinking of the ship. And it's a very graphic picture in many ways how in our own lives spiritually, if we don't take seriously the sin that, that continually wars against us, that it will lead to many 
trials and, and, and consequences in our life. And if not dealt with, like Saul, it may in fact lead to shipwreck. And so we really see in many ways Saul here makes shipwreck of the kingship that God had given him. And last week we, we just took some time to consider this command that God gave to Saul. It's a very uh, severe command to go and destroy completely the Amalekites and trying to look at that in light of creation and the fall and God's other uh, forms of judgment that were very severe in the Old Testament. We considered the Amalekites specifically and also how all of these judgments really do point us to the final day that approaches very quickly. And so this morning, I want to consider Saul's response to the command that God gave him. There's no question that Saul understood what God had told him to do. Samuel gives him the instruction, and uh, we find in just the previous chapter, verse uh, 52 of 14, Saul was developing a skill, as it were, in war. He was amassing for himself strong men, valiant men, surrounding himself by these men that he is equipped to defend his nation and to go to war when he needs to. And so Samuel brings this command to Saul that he needs to go and, and, and avenge the name of God and uh, the, the, the people upon the Amalekites because of the brutality that they had uh, acted with towards Israel when they came into the land. And we see Saul uh, understanding what he's supposed to do. He gathers up his army, uh, 10,000 men of Judah, 200,000 were told on foot, and he goes to the city of Amalek, and he is preparing his troops and in an act of mercy to the Kenites, who actually were the people of Moses' father-in-law, and they had acted kindly to Israel. And many times we see the Kenites uh, acting in, in, in kindness towards Israel. And so Saul, in a, in a gracious way, is saying, you guys need to get out of the way, you need to move out, and we are, we are coming against the Amalekites. And, you know, we think even in our own modern context, we see all of the tension uh, happening in the Middle East and Israel preparing to invade Gaza. And they, they tell the, the citizens there, you need to go. You need to get out of the way. We are pursuing an enemy. We're pursuing these terrorists who have sought to destroy us. And this is something what Saul had done here for the Kenites. And they heed the warning. They leave and Saul lays waste the city of Amalek. But then we have this problem that comes up. Though he obviously had plenty of force and skill, the element of surprise, they are destroyed. But then in verse 8, we find where the problem arises. Saul does not follow through with the Lord's command. And as we look at the, the various responses of Saul to the command of God, I was reminded of... Uh, I believe it was week three in the Behold Your God study. And just a bit of a plug for the Behold Your God study. We'll plan to start in November. If you haven't gone through it or if you have, I encourage you to, to try and, and, uh, and make that happen. It's a, a great study. And in week three, uh, John Schneider made the distinction between root sins and fruit sins. Root sins and fruit sins. And he pointed out in, in that week that and he's referencing many um, teachers throughout church history, all this pointing to the Bible primarily. But there are a number of root sins that we can consider. And he listed pride and unbelief and selfishness as root sins. And you can understand the picture. 
the root sins are sins that will lead to various other sins. They are sins which, if not dealt with, will, will bring about a harvest of destruction in our lives. And pride is one of those primary root sins. And I believe that is very much on display here in the life of Saul. The pride of this man's heart and what it leads him to in regard to, regards to God's word. It leads him to a, a corrupted obedience because of the harboring of this pride. And John Schneider uh, makes this statement. He says, it is true that all sin is serious because all sin is against God. Yet some sins are root sins or breeder sins. These root sins produce the fruit sins, the many outward expressions of rebellion against God. The fruit is obvious while the root lies hidden underground. We must repent of both root and fruit sins. And this, this uh, sin of pride is a serious problem that we ourselves must also repent of, or it will lead to a corrupted obedience in our lives. And just a simple definition, a dictionary definition of um, pride, found it refers to a foolishly and irrational corrupt sense of one's personal value, status, or accomplishments. A foolish and irrational corrupt sense of one's personal value, status, or accomplishments we could summarize as pride. And William Jenkins said that humility is the ornament of angels and pride the deformity of devils. And we could say the same thing for us as humans. It is a gracious thing in the sight of God when we are humble before him. We acknowledge his power and our dependence upon him. But it leads to the deformity of our lives, the deformity of our obedience when we harbor pride within our hearts. John Christentum said, pride is the beginning of sin, the first impulse and movement towards evil. Perhaps indeed it is both the root and the foundation, for every sin begins from it and is maintained by it. From pride springs contempt of the poor, desire of riches, the love of power, the longing for much glory. There is therefore no evil like pride, he says. It renders a man a demon, insolent, blasphemous, perjured, and makes him desirous of deaths and murders. How then can a man extinguish pride, he asks? By knowing God. For if we know him, all pride is banished. And so the question is, how does pride in our lives lead to a corrupted obedience? What are these manifestations of pride in our lives? And we see illustrated in many ways in the life of Saul. First of all, pride causes us to elevate ourselves above God. If we harbor pride, there will be a desire to see ourselves elevated above God. And as we look at Saul's actions here, some very strange things that he's doing. We're told that Saul built for himself a monument. It's a very strange thing to do. And, and you can understand the picture. Saul is feeling very confident. He's feeling very good about this decisive victory over the Amalekites. And he does not build an, an altar to the Lord. He does not acknowledge the, the Lord's name. But we find that Saul erects for himself an altar or a monument. And I think this is an indication to us that Saul is allowing this pride to take hold of his heart. We found in verse 12 there, Saul is told to Samuel that Saul at Carmel 
uh, has set up a monument for himself and turned and passed and then went on down to Gilgal. And it isn't it not ironic that this monument that Saul no doubt intended to be something of a picture of his success, a picture of his victory and, and his power and might is actually a monument of his foolishness and his pride and his disobedience. And Israel would look at that and say, oh yeah, that was the day when Saul forfeited the kingship that God had entrusted to him. And I had to think as well, why did he take Agag alive? It doesn't really make sense. If he was going to simply uh, act in pity towards the Amalekites, if he, if he was feeling some sense of, of uh, sympathy for them in this terrible plight as a consequence of their sin against God, surely he would have had pity upon the women or the children. Why the, the one man who, who would be most perhaps responsible for the, the, the wickedness of that nation? Why spare this man? And I thought... Uh, some of you are out, you know, working the, or, you know, going through the cut lines and trees these days and you're hunting for that animal, trying to maybe put some meat in the freezer. And it is one thing to bring an animal back. And, you know, we have this uh, interesting custom of uh, if you get a nice, you know, bull moose or a, a bull deer, a buck deer or a bull elk, you'll probably mount its head on the wall and keep it as something of a, a trophy of that hunt. But would it not be another thing to, to bring a, a big bull moose into your yard uh, on, an, on a halter and lead him into your yard and have him, you know, maybe, uh, you know, pull a sleigh for the, the children or something and to bring this mighty animal into submission? That would be a very different sort of trophy, wouldn't it, if you could actually subdue this beast into your own submission. And I think in some ways that was the mindset for these kings. They, they bring back these rulers, these powerful men, alive as a trophy, a testimony of their own victory. And I think that's exactly what Saul has in mind here. He's not going to admit that. But to bring back the king of the Malachites alive for Israel to see, there is a sense of, of, uh, of self-exaltation in that. I really can't think of and many other reasons why he would have spared him. And we see uh, also in verse 17, Samuel's rebuke. Now, uh, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and uh, they, they translate it as Samuel saying to Saul, though you are little in your own eyes. Now, I know the, uh, the, the New American Standard and the NIV King James, I believe, put it uh, in the past tense, which, which seems to be more fitting, though you were little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribe of Israel? And Samuel is pointing back to the day you remember when Saul was initially anointed as king and he was hiding in the luggage. He was, he was terrified of this position that God had called him to. And Samuel's reminding him of, Saul, you started off so insignificant in your eyes, so, so, so small, and now here you are with this pride and this sense of, of uh, presumption against the Lord. I think it is something of a rebuke to Saul from Samuel, exposing his pride. And we know there are so many illustrations in the Bible of those who seek to exalt themselves above God. And even the quote from Jenkins there that, that uh, pride is the deformity of, of devils. We, we see time and time again when man exalts himself above God, when he allows pride to be harbored in his heart, he will seek to 
established for himself a name, and he is not as much concerned with the fame of God, but of his own reputation. And we can ask ourselves, are we concerned about the name of God as much as we are our own name? Perhaps you've heard somebody slander your name or say something that is untrue about you, and there's immediately a sense of offensiveness. And I mean, that's somewhat natural if someone is saying things that are, that are unfair or, or mean about us or uh, that are simply untrue, then we immediately feel this sense of anger building up within us. But how do we respond when the name of God is, is mocked and belittled, even in our culture, when his word is, is belittled? Is there a sense of, of defensiveness that rises up within us? Or do we have a, a sense of, of holy indignation for the wickedness of our own generation, that the name of God is not exalted, that the fame of God is not praised? Or are we more concerned about our own fame and exaltation? Do we have the same sort of joy when we hear of someone turning to Christ or his gospel going forth in in various parts of the world as we do when somebody likes our post or shares our, uh, our, our social media comment? Let our response be like that of David in Psalm 1846. He says, The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation. David delighted to see the name of God exalted and that really sets him apart from Saul. So pride causes us to elevate ourselves before God, but pride also causes us to amend the word of God. And we see this so tragically in the life of Saul. He thinks that he can change and tamper with the word of God according to his own whims. He does not follow God's word. And yet what's so shocking about Saul's response is he convinced himself he did. He greets Samuel with this um, kind of big confident greeting that he has carried out the, the command of God. Verse 13, we find Saul seeing Samuel approaching. and Blessed be to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And this stinging response from Samuel, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen? Saul had convinced himself that he had walked according to God's word. And his pride had blinded him from seeing that he was actually altering and changing God's word in in align with his own desires and own ambitions. And this pride has caused him to amend the word of God. And he does this a number of times. In verse 20 again, we see Saul again trying to argue that he had done what he was told. In verse 20, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, he says, and I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. And then he turns and and, and just uh, throws the, the people under the bus in verse 21. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction. So if there's any error, Saul's just going to blame it on the people. I mean, what kind of leader is this? Not willing to accept responsibility, convinced himself that he had done what the, the word of the Lord had told him. And even towards the... Uh, towards later on, in verse 30, he, he seems to acknowledge that he, you know, after Samuel finally presses him to the point where he cannot get out of the corner that he's backed himself into, 
He says, I have sinned. And yet immediately he says, honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. And, and, and just the language that Saul is using here, there, there's no indication of a real sense of repentance, of brokenness for what he has done. But he, he, he admits, he's like, okay, fine, I'm sorry. It's like the, the child who has given you a five hundred excuses as to why he hit his brother and then finally he's willing to admit when his life is basically threatened that okay fine i was wrong to hit my brother i'm sorry you know it's like are you really sorry and saul's immediate concern is that his appearance before the people be maintained that samuel come back with him and and assure the elders that everything is is okay but he has sought to amend the word of God. And this is very much like even the the devil in the garden. We remember that age-old question that Satan approached Eve with. Did God really say? And this is a tactic the enemy uses again and again. And, And in pride, if we are not careful, if we're not turning from pride, we will be tempted to make just slight alterations to the word of God. Just, just a little bit of tweaking here and there at first so that we might get along a little better, that we wouldn't be quite as convicted. And in time, it will lead to shipwreck if we do not repent. And we see this in our generation, all kinds of, of exegetical gymnastics as people twist and distort the word of God. Genesis, they say, it's not actually history. It's just more like stories or, or little you know, fables that are made up for the instruction of God's people. It's not actually the word of God in that sense. We see the redefinition of marriage. Yes, well, well, that's not really what, what Paul means there. He's not really expecting that there would be this ongoing standard of marriage as one man and, and one woman. And, and yes, Jesus referenced Adam and Eve uh, as a basis for marriage, but that, that's just really made up stories. Anyways, Jesus didn't understand fully what he was talking about. All of these distortions of the word of God. Or yes, we, we read in the Bible that we are saved by sovereign grace, by God's alone. Election and God's choosing, but that's not really what Paul means. What he really means is, is that we chose God, and, and therefore it's actually God responding to us, you see. And, and these slight little alterations, the amending of God's word, but I believe it is rooted in the pride of man. And we're all tempted to soften the commands of God in our own lives. And I know that God says the marriage bed must be pure, but surely if I look at a little bit of pornography here or there, well, God understands that, that, you know, I I don't feel fulfilled and and, and I I need this as as an outlet for me. And so I don't think that God's really going to care all that much. Or I know that God commands me to forgive my brothers and sisters, to forgive those who have offended me, but but he doesn't understand how badly they hurt me. I, I can't actually forgive this person. This is the exception to God's word. Or I know that God commands me to respect my husband, but he is so frustrating and so difficult sometimes. And, and surely God will understand if I don't always, you know, repent of, of dishonoring him. And I know, I know that God says we're to cherish our wives and wash them with the word as Christ does the church. But sometimes she, she can be so selfish and, and she doesn't deserve that. And so God must understand. And you see, we too can be so guilty of distorting the word of God according to our own desires. And it is something we must guard against. And so we see how pride in Saul's life leads to the amending of God's word, but it also 
leads to the externalization of worship. Worship becomes simply an external thing to Saul. And this really is at the heart of Samuel's rebuke to Saul, that that God is not so much interested in the external things that Saul is doing, but he desires a heart of obedience, of love for God. And Saul still is stuck in this idea that if he just does the right things outwardly, he will be accepted before God. He continually references this idea that with his spoils that he spared, he he will offer up a sacrifice to God, as though that will justify his disobedience. At first, it seems to be his idea he says, and, and, and then as, as Samuel continues to press him, it's more the people's idea that they wanted to keep the, the in verse uh, 15, for example, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And he's even distancing himself, not my God, your God, Samuel. This is, this is for your God, an offering. And at the end, we see Saul with his desire to, to bow down as though even the action of bowing down is going to somehow bring about this sort of forgiveness of his offense. And even the use of the, the, uh, the, the pronouns that, that Paul uses is very interesting to look at through the passage. He starts off very confidently, I have performed the commandment of God and they have done the, the evil thing of sparing these things and I have done what God has said, but the, the people, well, they did this. And, and uh, as I said, finally Saul in verse 24 admits his sin and, and sorrow, but Again, he, he seems to be stuck in this external sort of, of understanding of what God desires of him. Sacrifices and bowing down and, 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 and honoring Samuel, perhaps. And we see a very different response. Uh, the rebuke from, from Samuel in verse 22 comes right to the heart of Saul's complete misunderstanding of worship to God that the Lord receives and is pleased by in this statement that Samuel makes, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Saul is misunderstanding. God is not interested in an external sort of religion. He, he doesn't need these offerings. He doesn't need these sacrifices. What the Lord desires is a broken and contrite heart. Remember when David was confronted by Nathan the prophet after he had sinned grievously and had not only committed adultery but had murdered the husband of Bathsheba Uriah and uh, was deceitful in, in, in how he brought this all about And when he is confronted by the prophet, we have, of course, in Psalm 51, uh, a record of David's response to the rebuke. Equally guilty as Saul, and yet he responds in brokenness. In Psalm 51, 15, for example, he prays, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So it's not as though Saul is 
the guilty king and David is the innocent king. Both have sinned grievously. One responds in brokenness before God, understanding that it is his own sin that has offended God. Then his sin has been against God, where Saul is unwilling to acknowledge the, the guilt before God and, and respond with a broken and contrite heart. He clings to his pride. Thinking even of Jesus at the woman of, at the well in, in uh, John 4.21, that the Father is seeking worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. It's not about this mountain or that temple in Jerusalem. That has nothing to do with what the Father is seeking. He's seeking a heart of worship. And Paul would affirm this, the true Jew. He's, he's not a Jew outwardly. It's not about circumcision. It's not about you dwelling somewhere in Israel. It's about a heart that has been circumcised. It is about your, your praise being from God and, and not from man. That's the true Jew. And, it's, and, and this is the, 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 the struggle. You know, even today, so many Christians are so obsessed with Israel saying things like, this is God's chosen people. No, if the, if the people of Israel have not repented and believed upon Christ, Paul says they're enemies of the cross. They are at enmity with God. And we don't give anybody a past that remains in this sort of external religion. It's an abomination to God. He loathes it. He despises it. This is why Jesus would tell the church at Laodicea, I I want to spew you out of my mouth because you have not understood your need before me. Our worship cannot be simply external. While we know there is certain fruit that should come out of the Christian's life, it's right to, to sing and to, to, to read the Bible and to, to pray and to be, be hospitable and to gather with the saints and, and, and to be kind and, and, and doing all of these things. But it must flow from a heart that has been transformed by the Spirit of God. Matthew Henry said, Public worship will not excuse us from secret worship. We must have both the public worship with the saints, but also as you are driving in the truck, as you are working at the job, as you are you know, out in the, the cow pen or you're in the office or, or whatever it is you are doing, there's a sense in which you have this ongoing state of worship before God, praying to God, meditating upon his word. We have the ability now to, to listen to, to sermons and podcasts and books and, and the Bible, uh, even while we work don't have a good set of, of uh, headphones, I would say that's a, a good investment. You can get wireless ones now. They're hard to keep track of. Uh, I saw the Apple um, uh, wireless headphones. Now they have a wire on them so you don't lose them. So it's kind of funny. But, but this is actually a wonderful tool that we can use to encourage worship as we're going about our day, going about our work. Even last night I was... Um, kicking myself for procrastinating and trying to get a few things ready for winter outside and, and uh, knew I had a little bit of, uh, of stuff to do getting the chicken coop ready and I needed to spray foam around our addition a bit and do some things and so put in some, some uh, earbuds and, and put on a podcast or something while I'm out doing that. It's a great way to encourage worship in our hearts as we go throughout the week. To give yourself to the means of grace, but not settle for an external worship only. Continue to seek the Lord in your inner being, in your heart. And lastly, we see this morning that pride in our lives leads also to 
uh, oh, sorry, pride, um, it not only leads to an external worship, but pride also encages us from true repentance. And this is perhaps the most tragic thing with Saul. If we will not repent of pride, it encages us from truly repenting against God, uh, to God, rather, sorry. It prevents us from, from really experiencing the forgiveness and mercy that God is offering to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. We must lay down our pride. And if we will not, then we are, even as uh, John Bunyan would portray it, the man in the iron cage. And we see that Saul loses the throne, and that's uh, significant in and of itself. His kingship is torn from him, but that does not mean that he must forfeit his soul. He reaps the consequence of his actions. He's going to be removed as king, but just personally, Saul the man is still in need of repentance before God to be reconciled to God. And yet, as we will see as it continues to unfold, he just seems to dig his heels in more and more, holding on to his pride until he gets to the point where he is attempting to kill his own son with a spear or kill the, the one whom the Lord will anoint. He becomes a persecutor of the people of God. He tears the robe from Samuel in what seems to be an act of desperation and some sort of confession. But I was helped again by uh, Thomas Watson's. He, he gives some elements that must be part of true repentance. And he says, first of all, there must be the sight of sin and there must be the sorrow for sin and the confession of sin. And we say, it seems that Saul is, is to that point, he, he finally acknowledges his sin. He seems to be sorry that he, what he has done is wrong, and he confesses it to Samuel. But then Thomas Watson goes on and he points out there must also be a hatred for sin and a turning from sin. And he says, if any one ingredient is left out, it loses its virtue. And as you measure Saul's response here, you see that he has not truly repented. There is no real sense of hatred for what he has done within his own heart and life. And there is no real turning from it. There is no real correction to what he has done is wrong. It's Samuel who picks up the sword and we have this graphic picture of he hacks Agag to pieces. And you see Samuel... He's not, Samuel is not a bloodthirsty prophet who delights in, in, in killing people. Samuel is executing the judgment that God had already pronounced upon this king. He had been given the death penalty justly because of the murderous way in which Samuel even references it, that he had killed the, the innocent people of Israel, the women, the children. He had um, destroyed them and now his life is taken and he has brought, the, the Amalekites have brought down judgment upon their, their whole people in the way they behaved. So Samuel executes what Saul should have done. But we don't see in Saul this real sense of brokenness. And in Pilgrim's Progress, uh, Christian is at the house of the interpreter and he sees this man in the iron cage and he asks the man, who, who are you? What are you doing in there? And as the story unfolds, it pointed out that he 
once was a professing Christian. He once thought himself to be on his way to the celestial city, but he had not listened to the voice of God. He had treated the blood of Christ with with the, with the triviality, he, he did not uh, walk seriously in his confession. And as a result, he is caged up with this inability to even repent of his hardness of heart. And it's a very tragic picture in many ways we see of Saul, this man in an iron cage, unwilling to turn from his pride. This is why John Owen would say we must be killing sin or it will be killing us, if we will not turn from it, then it will seize hold of us and and we will not be able to let it go. It will grip us tighter and tighter. And so there's urgency in the call to turn from it. We need to ask ourselves, do we understand what biblical repentance is? It is more than just an apology. There is this spirit-wrought hatred of our sin. And it's not that we never sin again after truly repenting, but there is this growing hatred for our sin in the offensiveness it is to God. We realize that it was my sin, even as we sing in the, the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. It was my sin that held him there. And that should pierce our own hearts, even as we think about the times we offend the Lord. It is as though we are driving nails afresh into Christ, our Savior, as we mock his grace in our sin. And this produces in the Christian a hatred for it, a loathing of it. And as the Lord gives us victory in one area of sin, maybe it is in battling um, pornography and and after much battling and prayer and, 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 and the memorizing of scripture, the Lord gives you victory in that and you begin to experience the freedom of it. But what you find is then underneath that sin, there are other layers of, of lust, of pride, of discontentment. And the Lord keeps pressing and pressing upon those sins, exposing them in us. And we continue in this life of repentance, continually striving forwards towards God, having what Paul called in 2 Corinthians 7, a godly grief that produces a repentance and leads to salvation, whereas worldly grief produces death. We consider our sin in light of what it costs the Son of God, and it, it, we loathe it, and then we turn from it. We are, we are pushing it away. We are casting it off, and we are seeking to be clothed in Christ and His righteousness. And so let us battle against our pride. Let us put it to death. And I think, uh, as John Christendom pointed out, how can we extinguish pride while well, it comes as we know God? For if we know him, all pride is banished. We must cultivate a high view of God through his word, giving ourselves to the means of grace that he's given, that this pride would be crucified within us and replaced by a sense of awe and admiration for God and and a humility before him as we realize our need. I know if we are honest with ourselves, this is a daily battle, even when we are oblivious to it. And when we consider that uh, we, we, we fail so often and many times we see these things manifesting in our lives, we have to remember that Saul is, yes, not our shining example here, but Christ, the true King of Israel, is our perfect example. He is our perfect obedience. 
He actively obeyed all of God's commands all of his life. Never once did he amend the word of God. Of course, Christ had no need to repent of sin, for he had none. His, his worship was pure. It was from the heart. Christ delighted to make much of the Father, though he himself is the Son, sharing in the essence of the Father. And so we, when we are tempted to despair at our own failure, we look at the perfection of Christ and we rejoice that his life was given for you. His obedience by faith given to you. His righteousness by faith given to you. Your sins placed upon his shoulders so that you may not be condemned according to your pride. If you will repent and you will cling to Christ, you will be counted as righteous in him. And by his spirit, you will be enabled to press on, taking up the armor of the Lord and declaring war on your sin in the strength that he gives and carrying out the call of his kingdom on our lives. So cast off the sin that so easily entangles us. Put on the armor of, Lord, of the Lord and run after Christ today. When you see these manifestations of pride, confess it. Deal with the heart. Cry out to the Lord. Fast if you must. Deal with it with a sense of urgency. Lest we too have a corrupted obedience before our Lord. And all the while looking to Christ who is our righteousness. Let's pray. And we'll close there this morning. Father, we come to you now and we, Lord, are uh, so many times reminded in these accounts of, Lord, our own need of you. Lord, we know that uh, it is by your spirit, Lord, that, that we are made alive and given the ability to even perceive your kingdom, to understand what you require of us, Lord, that that, that would come to us as, It's not condemnation, but good news in Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk humbly before you, that you would, Lord, help us to to take an honest look at ourselves before your word and where we find pride and arrogance harboring within us, Lord, that we we would expose it, we would call it what it is. Taking the sword of the Spirit, your word, we would attack it, Lord, and and continue to abide in Christ our Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. And we ask you help us to walk in him this week. And we pray this all now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon preached at Redeeming Grace Bible Church. If you'd like to find out more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church or find other sermons and resources, please visit us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca. We pray the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. That the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.